Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Coming up on Studios America, we all know inflation sucks. But do we know why it sucks or how long it's going to suck? We have an economics professor on hand to break it down for us. CNN is in trouble for the very thing they've shamed so many others about. Spoiler, it involves racism. Blaze TV subscribers get tons of access to exclusive content all over the place. Don't miss out. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you'll save 10 bucks. And years from now, what are we going to wish we thought of before involving ourselves in Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Let's get ahead of our 2020 hindsight as we do Russian repercussions. Stu does America. War is hell. It's true. War is hell. And sometimes the consequences of war are much more brutal than you think they're going to be when you go into the beginning of, uh, of, of a conflict. We're seeing that now with Russia and Ukraine. We knew there were going to be horrible consequences of these sanctions. And now we're seeing the worst of all of them. The International Cat Federation has banned Russian cats from their competitions. I, I should have warned you if you're driving, listening to the podcast or something to pull over because hearing news like that is the type of thing that makes you just swerve off the road into a pole, perhaps hitting a stray cat on your journey. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I want to make sure we're not just saying, oh, well, they're just not, what's, what's the big deal? They're just going to, you know, some cat from Russia can't be in a competition. Oh, no, it goes much further than this. First of all, the board of the FIFE, which, of course, is the Federation International Feline Association or something. Um, anyway, they, they feel they cannot wit- just witness these atrocities and do nothing. So it has decided that no cat bred in Russia may be imported and registered in any pedigree book outside of Russia, regardless of which organization issued its pedigree. And no cat belonging to exhibitors living in Russia may be entered into a show outside of Russia, regardless of which organization these exhibitors hold their membership in. So you got this? This is, if you are in Phoenix, okay, and you got a Russian bred cat, you're out. You are screwed. No competitions for you. Or if you happen to have like a, I don't know, a normal orange cat that you picked up on the side of the road and then moved to Russia. If you're in Russia, you can't enter your your competition with the American bred cat. I mean, what is this world coming to? Everything is collapsing around us. It's just one of those things you're, you're going to have to plan for. I mean, Glenn says all the time, you know, make sure you're pre- prepared for any uh, outcome that could come up. This is the one I don't think any of us could prepared for. I hope your cats are prepared. Let me give you a couple of updates. Here's the uh, map of the current war, at least as, as, as reported. Um, this is uh, basically 
the progress Russia has made. And you see, they're still on the outskirts of Ukraine. They're getting closer to Kyiv. They've taken over um, a lot of land in the southern regions and are looking to uh, go through all of this. One of the things that's interesting to think about when you look at the war and the progress, it's been about a week since this started. And there's been a lot of reporting about how Russia has not been able to go as fast as they hoped, how they've been slowed down, how they're not seeing the progress that they want. To put this into perspective, and this is why I'm so hesitant to celebrate news like that, because I, you know, look, I want Ukraine to push Vladimir Putin out of this country uh, because this is a war that is has been launched for, in my view, uh, no reason. Uh, this is a war of aggression. It's pretty clear to me. Um, however, you look at this and you say, well, should we be celebrating this, this fierce response? Well, let me give you a couple ways to look at it. Is it a fierce response? Well, yes, it is. In fact, uh, so far, Russia is admitting to about 500 dead on, on their side. Now, the, the number by media members and uh, reporting from the ground there is believed to be about four times as high as that in reality, about 2,000. If that number is true, uh, in one week of this invasion, they've suffered more casualties than we did in the first year or two of the Iraq war. So this has been a really fierce um, pushback. On the other side of this, it's only been a week. We don't know how this is going to turn out. I think it's going to get a lot uglier pretty fast here. And remember, it took us two weeks to get to Baghdad. So we've only gone through one week here celebrating this you know, incredible effort by the Ukrainians is m perhaps premature at this point. Negotiators have agreed to a temporary ceasefire in some areas to evacuate civilians. And the Russians have been taking a beating internationally because a lot of rockets are hitting buildings that look like apartment buildings. Uh, this is happening all over the country. And so far... Ukraine is winning the propaganda war by a, a wide, wide margin around the globe. Um, so but I don't know how temporary is this going to be? The, the president of uh, Belarus, the dictator of Belarus, uh, is Lukashenko. And he was, you know, doing the typical thing you do when you're a dictator. I'm like, look at this map. I've got a map. Look at all these things on this map. Arrows and and uh, military installments all over the map. This is what we're going to do. We're winning. We're doing well. Well, the map they used if you look really closely, you can see seems to highlight of an invasion into Moldova, a totally separate country. So we don't know. Is that in the planning? Is that definitely going to happen? Are they planning to start that as soon as they can get through with Ukraine? That definitely seems like a possibility as Vladimir Putin looks to expand his empire into the old school Russian empire, the old school Soviet Union. It's not exactly a promising uh, vision of the future. Now, I, what I want to do with today's show is kind of to look at what are we missing? What are we not thinking about yet? As we look forward, what is the thing that we're going to kind of look back at and say, I wish we would have put a little more thought into that part of it before it all started. What is that thing? We're seeing now the, the, the sanctions that we put on, which are pretty significant, having effects all over the world uh, when it comes to Russia. For example, this uh, this came in today. Re uh, Russia Today, the Russian propaganda network uh, that was uh, in America, RT America, seizing productions and laying off its staff, um, according to a memo acquired by Oliver Darcy at CNN. 
This is, uh, you know, if you go to, if you have like DirecTV, you go to the Russia Today channel, it was, it's been on DirecTV for years and years and years, and now it just says this channel no longer available. It got pulled from everything. They can't get access to money. They can't get ma- access to banks. They can't pay people. They're just shutting the thing down. I mean, this is, this is having effects, and it is hammering their economy. We kicked them off swift as it was kind of the, the big headline move that everyone was talking about as the uh, really stringent move, uh, other than the, the cat thing. You know, the cat thing is the number one move, but then we kicked them off SWIFT, which is an international banking messaging system, basically. Uh, even bigger than that, and has had less attention, is we froze the assets of their central bank. Their central bank held hundreds of billions of dollars around the world in foreign banks, and we just sort of froze them. Uh, everyone kind of came together and did that. It's a major, it's a big bullet in a war. And it's something that Vladimir Putin's not going to look so kindly on, which I understand. We're seeing repercussions of this all throughout the economy. For example, you know a lot of these billionaires, these oligarchs that are being targeted by these sanctions are now taking their money and putting it into cryptocurrency. We've seen a big bump in you know, stuff like Bitcoin over the past week or so. And that, of course, is going to raise the ire of all sorts of people who have been looking to get their hands into Bitcoin the whole time. Look, we couldn't even, these sanctions wouldn't work because everyone was going to cryptocurrency. We must have our hands in regulating cryptocurrency. You know that it's going to be the reaction of people like Elizabeth Warren, who've always looked for a justification to do this. They won't look at what it's done for the Ukrainian people who are having their own economic problems as they're getting bombed all over the place. And over a million Ukrainians have fled the country and they are able to not just try to you know, stash all their cash into uh, suitcases. They are able to put it into Bitcoin and go across borders and access their money. Millions and millions of people now have a way to avoid the worst uh, economic consequences of a a war of aggression against them. People who are fleeing a nation can now take their money and they don't have to worry about it getting stolen, you know, two seconds after they cross the border because no one can access it without those codes. This has been a real positive for people fleeing a war-torn area and it's never been available until very, very recently. Um, But we do think, of course, a crypto crackdown will come uh, soon. And, you know, these billionaires and these oligarchs it's an interesting thing we're doing with, with them. We know that some of these people, some of the oligarchs over in Russia, are billionaires because they're very closely tied to Vladimir Putin. But that's not, that's not all of them. They're not all like that. And now we're seeing um, organizations like, you know, like BP and, and Shell who are saying, look, we're divesting from Russia. We don't want anything to do with this. That's all well and good. However, who's going to buy those assets? Who's going to buy 20% of the state oil company in Russia? Well, that's going to be a bunch of oligarchs. The people you're trying to punish are going to buy these assets at pennies on the dollar. And who knows how much profit could be down the road for these people. On the other hand, some of these oligarchs have come out and said, hey, we don't, we don't like this war. We don't like this at all. We don't want this to happen. We want it to end right now. Do you punish them? As well, do you punish their families? Do you punish their aides? This is a very difficult thing to figure out. And how are they going to punish them? You know, there are these yachts all around the uh, world that are, you know, billions, uh, you know, by billionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars for these yachts. 
Uh, and, you know, we're just freezing them. We're seizing them in some cases. How are we doing that? It's interesting. We've complained about this law before. Um, it's being utilized in some ways here. Uh, for starters, it's, why, why is this legal, was the question asked by NBC News. For starters, it's legal under the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act, which has its roots in the 18th century when America would seize cargo from foreign ships that didn't pay a customs or import tax. It also grew as a drug law enforcement tool in the 80s, and it's a common tool against terrorists and fugitives, and also people coming, small business owners coming back from the bank and speeding. We've seen all sorts of abuses of that law, so we'll see how that goes going forward. Um, you know, think about this. Switzerland, Switzerland has bailed on their policy of neutrality for this. We are turning up the heat and tightening the screws on Russia in a way that really you've never seen before. Outside of, you know, uh, real uh, you know, c- c- countries that are so far out of the normal economic system. Russia has the 11th largest economy in the world and never has something like this happen with a country at that level. You, know, you look at something like Afghanistan. When we left Afghanistan, the Taliban took over. We also froze their central bank assets. Iran, back when the revolution happened, we froze those assets. Luckily, I think, was it Biden or, or Obama? I can't remember who gave them back finally. I think it was Biden um, who gave those assets back from all those time, that, that time ago, which is great. I'm glad Really glad the Iranians were able to get that cash back. Uh, but, it, you know, we will occasionally do this to terrorist regimes and real and real outliers in the economic community. Usually, though, people that are already cut off from the global economy. Russia isn't. Russia is well integrated into the global economy. Um, you know, the issue here is what are the consequences of all of this? We all want Russia to not go kill a bunch of civilians in Ukraine. I think at least most of us do. I think that's pretty clear. This may very well be appropriate in these situations. This is a war of aggression, and it's not, it's not like a, a borderline one. This is just one of those things where Vladimir Putin saw the West, saw how weak we were after, after we pulled out of Afghanistan, after Hong Kong uh, was uh, imposed on by China. And our response to it was like, you know what? We need to punish NBA general managers who tweet support for Hong Kong. That, that'll show them. And it did show them. It showed China. It showed Russia. And Russia felt that we were weak and vulnerable and that NATO was weak and vulnerable and that Europe was weak and vulnerable. And he thought he could go in here and do this. And so pushing back hard against it is an important thing. It's not nothing. It's something that probably does need to be done. And there are regimes who cross this line, as we talked about with Iran, Afghanistan. I mean, it would have been great if we would have been able to do these things to the Nazi regime back in the day and weaken them economically. We weren't able to do as much of that. They built up a giant war machine because of it. But if we punish this country so much that their people suffer, that their economy collapses for a very long time, that, they, that if all of this goes down and what we do is cause an entire nation of people aggressive to Western values for the, till the end of time, we may have long-term consequences that far outweigh what's going on now. And we have to be incredibly careful about this. I mean, is there anything that's, that you draw the line at when it comes to sanctions? We're already admitting publicly that we're sending weapons 
that are killing soldiers in Russia. We're sending them. We're telling people that. Now, can you imagine what would have happened when we went into Iraq if Russia was outwardly saying, by the way, we're sending a bunch of missiles to try to kill U.S. soldiers? They wouldn't have, we wouldn't have liked that that much. Russia doesn't like this that much. We don't want to create a situation that echoes through our kids and our grandkids' generations and gets much, much worse. Ukraine went to the nonprofit that manages the Internet and asked them basically, hey, can you just turn the Internet off for Russia? Can we kick them out of that, too? We kicked them out of all the banking stuff. Can we kick them out of that, too? Luckily, they said no. Uh, Tyler Carden tweets, this is the right decision, but will I can't have the spine to stand by it as the mob turns up the heat. The promise of the early Internet was decentralization, infocoms, etc. But stories like this one reveal just how centralized it has become. Command and control, bad news. It's a dangerous place we're being put into here. Look, all of this happens only because Vladimir Putin has launched a war against his neighbor and is killing untold numbers of civilians for no good reason. He deserves our scorn for that. Ukraine is far from perfect, but they're on the right side of this. Our allies in NATO are losing the buffer state between a murderous dictator and our own involvement in what would amount to World War III. I don't want that to happen. It's hard to argue that this isn't a good time to unleash sanctions and maybe the toughest sanctions that we can come up with. But this is sort of like COVID. A lot of people give Trump a hard time for those first couple of weeks. But we didn't know much of anything about the virus at that point. And we didn't even have tests to know who had it and who didn't. But as we said from the very beginning, if we do this right or wrong, we're going to have an endless battle to try to pull these emergency powers out of the hands of the government. And we've had to fight that fight for two years. And that battle is not even close to over, over yet. Now we got a new one. The same thing applies to Russia and Ukraine. These extreme measures may very well be justified when a country starts murdering their neighbors for no reason. But what happens when the world decides our, our drone strike on a terrorist is justification for these sorts of extreme measures? What happens when they decide Israeli settlements are enough of a reason to shut off that country's entire financial future? What about when we don't sign on to a global warming treaty? Remember, that's our biggest existential threat after all. What repercussions will the rest of the world feel from all of this? What does this mean to the average Russian, many of whom want nothing to do with this war? What happens long term when these same tools are turned against us? And most importantly, what does this mean for Russian cats? Hashtag feline freedom. This winter, you gotta upgrade your daily routine with Bespoke Post and their new seasonal lineup of must-have Box of Awesome collections. No matter what you're into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From winter cocktails to cozy threads and camping gear essentials, 
Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. You can get started with a quiz at boxofawesome.com and you give them kind of like, what are your interests? What are the things that you like? What are the things that you do? Do you go on vacation uh, maybe a certain way? Do you have a hobby that you're really hot on? They will navigate you uh, to the right box of awesome package for you. And they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up. You can skip a month or cancel every time. It's really like, customizable. Uh, so if you want to take a month off, no big deal. Uh, each box costs only 45 bucks, but has over $70 worth of gear inside and usually way above $70. Plus, with each box of awesome, you're supporting small business. 90% of everything that comes in your box of awesome is from a small up-and-coming brand. This is an an incredible gift. If you have some, uh, something coming up where you need to buy a gift for somebody, birthday, you know, I don't know what's coming up, Father's Day, Mother's Day, whatever's coming up. Get 20% off your monthly box of uh, awesome when you go to boxofawesome.com and enter the code STU at checkout. It's boxofawesome.com. The code is STU for 20% off your first box. Boxofawesome.com, code STU. I'm happy to welcome Alexander Salter to the program. He's an economics professor at Texas Tech University and author of the new Reason.com piece. Is high inflation the new normal? Make sure to check that out. We'll tweet it out a little bit later on in the program. Alexander, how's it going? Doing really well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, you know, this is one of those topics. I think it is, we have a lot of stuff going on in the world, as, as we all know. Um, but this is the thing I think that is hitting the American people the hardest right now, which is inflation. It's a difficult thing for the average person to understand and really uh, be able to figure out what the recipe is that goes uh, goes into this final dish. So how do you explain inflation and what's going on right now? Absolutely. If I'm going to sum it up in one sentence, it's surging demand amidst lagging supply. Basically, there's a lot of purchasing power in the economy right now that's driving up prices. But also there are problems in terms of turning intermediate goods into final goods and services. Energy prices, high. Semiconductors, hard to get. Transportation problems everywhere. When you have the combination of lots of purchasing power in the economy with no real really good for it to go in terms of a path, that's when you get the pipes clog. That's when you get inflation. Okay, so there's been a couple of um, uh, proposed uh, solutions or, I guess, explanations for what we're going through right now. Let me, let me go through a couple of these. Number one, the idea is that this is a transitory phenomenon. We're having a buildup because of, you know, of uh, sort of the fallout of the COVID era. And that's the main thing that's that's causing this right now. Do you buy that explanation? Initially, I was sympathetic to the transitory explanation. You can't really reboot an economy the way that you reboot a computer. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, we're learning the hard way that getting back all those patterns of specialization and trade to work can take a lot of effort. And so that's part of the explanation. But the longer this goes on, I think that we have to fess up to the possibility that this is just a mainly, not entirely, but mainly a good old, old fashioned demand side inflationary event. We've had a lot of fiscal policy. We've had a lot of monetary policy. Now, at the time, there were good reasons for that. You might have wanted to have stabilized the economy during the darkest days of the COVID crisis. But again, at the end of the day, that purchasing power has to go somewhere and it's going to drive up prices for goods and services. So while I think that the transitory explanation was plausible six months ago, three months ago, I think that we're looking at something that's unfortunately a little more durable now. Mm. Uh, now, you kind of touched on, I think, another one of these explanations that has come out, which is 
if there's going to be a demand side uh, issue, uh, part of that, obviously, coming out of the pandemic with all the money that we spent, we spent trillions and trillions of dollars to prop up the economy. As you mentioned, some of that made sense at the time, especially considering the restrictions that were being implemented. Uh, but how much is spending and these sort of giant government programs and giveaways to try to heal uh, the economic wounds of uh, the pandemic, how much of that is playing into the inflation numbers we're seeing now? That's a great question. And that's something that economists don't even agree about amongst themselves. The usual view is that expansionary fiscal policy, basically government spending a ton of money, doesn't have too much of an effect on inflation. The usual place that we look is monetary policy. And to be clear, there's been a lot of new money creation. Over the course of the pandemic, the Fed's balance sheet went from something like $4.5 trillion to just shy of $9 trillion today. So that's a lot of new money creation. At the same time, we've never really had deficits ratch up this fast, this quickly. So we're sort of off the edge of the map when it comes to fiscal policy, too. So it might be the case that when economists look back and say, oh, look, deficits weren't all that inflationary when Reagan was president. Deficits weren't all that inflationary when Obama was president. Well, as a percentage of GDP, they weren't anywhere near as big as they are now. So it could be that we're sort of nearing uh, uncharted territory, not just for monetary expansion, but fiscal expansion as well. Ultimately, it's some combination of the two. I mean, I know this isn't literally modern monetary theory, but it seems like we're just sort of experimenting. We just decided, hey, let's give it a shot for a couple of years, see what happens. And I feel like we're seeing what happens. We're learning the hard way what happens when you inject a ton of purchasing power into the economy without the actual goods and services there to back it up. Now, a lot of modern monetary theorists were acting kind of triumphant for a while because until comparatively recently, again, there had been a lot of money creation, a lot of fiscal policy and not much inflation. Right In the uh, immediate months after the government intervention packages, we saw inflation still below 2%. And so that led a lot of people who subscribe to modern monetary theory say, look, we can run the printing presses. We can spend as much as we want and print the money to pay for it, either directly or indirectly. And inflation is not a problem. Inflation has once again reared its ugly head. And all of a sudden, all the modern monetary theorists have gotten rather quiet. I wonder why that is. <laughs> it is a shocking silence uh, all of a sudden. Um, Alexander, how do we turn this around? I mean, I, I, I see no evidence of a government that's going to decide to spend less money. I mean, it's just a, a question of how big is the increase? Maybe we can trim a little bit off the worst numbers we hear. But it, there's never any a, uh, appetite seemingly on either side of the aisle now for cutting spending, for avoiding these gigantic infusions of cash into the economy, not to mention Fed policy, what do we do here? It's always hard to get politicians to agree to a budget cut. Fortunately for us, I don't even think that we need to get to a budget cut. I think the immediate place to go with respect to fiscal policy is slow the rate of increase of spending. We don't even need to bring it down, but if we could take a couple of fractions of percentage points, a tenth of a percent, maybe 1% off the growth rate, that would be a good signal to markets that we're getting serious about our fiscal future. Because in the long run, we don't actually need to completely balance the budget. All we need is for government spending to grow slower than economic growth. So as long as the rate at which we're churning out new goods and services, cars, TVs, laptops, all that good stuff, as long as that number is higher than the rate of growth of government spending, we're going to be okay. 
we're ultimately going to have the real goods and services necessary to back up all that purchasing power. And so we don't have to worry that much about inflation. On the monetary side, there's no getting around it. We got to shrink the balance sheet. We got to get something back to approximating normal monetary policy. Keep in mind that before the last crisis, right, not even the COVID crisis, but the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed's balance sheet was less than $1 trillion. So we've seen pretty much a tenfold increase in the Fed's balance sheet in half a generation. That's not sustainable, and I would argue that that's not prudent. We really need to get back to old school monetary policy where we're only buying and selling short-term public securities to stabilize markets for a short period of time. Bring back the 2006 playbook and we'll be okay. <laughs> that is a mind-blowing statistic. One trillion to 10 trillion. I mean, these are just, uh, in, in that short of a time, it's just terrifying. I think people kind of understand um, how this stuff works when they look at you know, their, own, their own situations. You know, I know that I just refinance my mortgage on my house. And the reason I did that is because I'm afraid these rates are going to go up in the future. Uh, we are, may very well see that. It looks like we're going to see that later uh, this month and, and ongoing into the future as they try to solve this problem. But what happens if this happens not to everyone's homes, but to the, the borrowing rates that our country has? We're going to wind up spending a larger and larger uh, portion of our budget just on spending, on paying back previous interest. Uh, and it's going to get unsustainable pretty quickly. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. The real danger is if interest rates start going up, then all of those borrowing costs that we thought were negligible are suddenly going to bite. And if you think that partisanship is bad right now, if you think that political contest between the parties is a little bit of hardball right now, wait until we have even less real resources to devote to political objectives just because we have to keep on paying more and more and more of it just to service the debt. If interest rates go up by even 1% higher than CBO uh, expectations, that's trillions of dollars added to all public debt for the future for every generation that that interest rate lasts. We're quickly running out of fiscal room. And again, with in inflation running as high as it is, and with economic growth across the world continuing to trend upward, I think that we do have to face the fact that we're not going to get to have 1.5% interest rates on 10-year Treasury securities forever. We're going to get to normal interest rates sooner or later, and I would prefer that we have our fiscal house in order on the sooner side <laughs> so we can be ready when it happens. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's very good advice. Um, can you, uh, for a second, talk to, talk to me about the, uh, the inflation that's hitting everyday products, even these long-term products. I know I, or, I ordered a new car. I've had a, my car for 10 or 11 years. I ordered a new car six months ago. And to this day, they have not even emailed me to tell me the order has been pulled. There's like no potential for progress with this car. I may never see it. Uh, we're seeing this stuff build up all around the economy. Do we have any idea when the supply will catch up with demand? It's anybody's guess. What we need is for three things to happen simultaneously. One, we need the transportation bottlenecks to lessen. I think that there's some optimism. I think that there's some reason to think that that's going to start getting better in the near to in the near future. Excuse me, even with the unfortunate uh, conflict that's happening right now in Europe. Number two, energy prices. That's going to have an effect on pretty much everything because energy is a major input for virtually every good or service that we can consume. Unfortunately, this is where the conflict in Europe right now is really going to hurt. Because energy prices are set in a global market, you can't look at U.S. oil imports, for example, and say, oh, we're getting only 8% of our oil from Russia. 
or whatever the relevant statistic is. As soon as oil prices go up from anywhere, that's going to have an effect on global oil prices just based on how supply and demand works. So that's going to be something that we're really going to have to pay attention to. And the third thing that we need, and this might be the hardest of all, is again, that stable fiscal and monetary environment that we talked about at the beginning. We need people to be able to plan for the future. We need people to have reasonable expectations about what the purchasing power of their income is. Otherwise, they're not going to know how to budget over time. We need to give them that security. And that's something that only the public sector can do. They haven't been doing a good job of it. They've dropped the ball for at least two years, more likely far many more than two years, but we'll give them credit for the previous stuff. But if we can work towards fiscal and monetary normalization, that'll be two or three of those factors. We might just have to eat the high oil prices for a while. Two out of three ain't bad. Mm. I think we can live with it. All right, Alexander, last one before I let you go. Uh, scale of one to 10, how screwed are we? I think we're sitting right about a seven. Okay. I think we're sitting right about a seven. And I would lower that number significantly if I saw any appetite for shrinking the Fed's balance sheet or for even slowing the rate of growth of government spending. And again, maybe policymakers will pleasantly surprise me. I would love to lower that down to a four or a five. But again, we need two very difficult political things. We need both parties to agree to not spend as much as they otherwise would want. And we need central bankers to voluntarily step back from the outsized power that they've had on financial markets since really the 2008 crisis. Have you ever tried to get a bureaucrat to turn down power? <laughs> Unlikely. Yeah, it doesn't work out that well. Alexander Salter is an economics professor at Texas Tech University. Author of the new piece, Is High Inflation the New Normal? Let's hope not. You can find that over at Reason.com. Alexander, thanks for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We were just talking about mortgage rates. Um, if you're going to buy a home, now is probably a good time because you can lock in low rates now, uh, even though the whole process can be a little difficult. You need to have a real estate agent that you can trust. And that's, of course, why realestateagentsitrust.com exists for you to find that person, whether you're buying or selling. Don't just accept the agent that uh, the seller has if you're buying a new home. If you're moving to a new area, you need to find the best agent in that area. area. And if you're selling your home right now, look, this, you know, we know what the market's been like the last couple of years. This, is, this could be one of the biggest financial transactions you ever make in your entire life. It's really a good idea to have a good person on your side. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find that person. You can get more information right now at realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. Look, it's a, it's a tough day for us over here at Blaze TV. We've enjoyed having you as a subscriber. It was good while it lasted. BlazeTV.com slash stew. The promo code is stew. But I know you're not going to go use that and save the 10 bucks. I know it's not going to happen. Because if you're a subscriber, you're probably leaving us as of today. Why? CNN Plus is finally available to subscribe. Yes, I know. They're charging $4.99 a month for CNN Plus. And I assume you're going to be leaving us and going there. If you do so right now, you can get it for $2.99 a month forever for your entire life. And it, I guarantee it won't be worth that much, but you can get it for $2.99 a month. But, but you might not want to. A journalist group is now attacking CNN for something that CNN attacks everyone else for, a lack of diversity. This is incredible that this always, you look at their lineup and it's like, you know, it looks like it's as white as white can be. Uh, it's like a country club membership. Uh, but they apparently have put no Hispanics on 
uh, on CNN Plus. A lack of Latino journalists, this is according to the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, they're pissed off about this. So CNN, racist. What else can we say? That's why we have nothing but Hispanics here. Only Hispanics allowed to be hired at Blaze TV. Whenever we hire, we say we're going to have a new show. We always announce it like Joe Biden did. We're going to tell you the genitals and the skin color of the person we're going to hire before we even start looking. That's our promise to you here at Blaze TV. John Stewart, maybe looking at uh, Zelensky, and people have called Zelensky the John Stewart of uh, Ukraine. John Stewart was asked, uh, how do you, are you going to run for office at some point? He's always said no. And now he says, oh, how do you not think about it? How do you not think about it when you watch all of this? You're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. It's sort of like when you get in a car and one driver's drunk and you're like, did you ever think about taking the wheel? And you're sort of like, yeah, I did. Uh, He goes on to uh, say that he's I mean, I don't know if this is a serious uh, effort to go there, but this would be I mean, it would be exactly what we deserve as a country, wouldn't it? Just so you get John Stewart as president. Oh, God, it would be so agonizing. Uh, But. Uh, We'll see. I mean, he's been a little bit less agonizing as of late, so who knows? Uh, There is a new lawsuit out there against my good friends at McDonald's. They're responsible for most of what you see here today. Uh, They are getting sued for $900 million as part of a fascinating story. There's a great long readout about this that I read a couple of years ago. It's It's a startup called Kitsch. And Kitsch basically said... What if we created something that fixed all these annoying McDonald's ice cream and shake machines? You know how they're always broken whenever you go to McDonald's? This is something very, very common among people who go to McDonald's 14, 16 times a week like I do. And basically, they never work. So they actually were able to develop a a telephone-sized piece of equipment that was able to help you basically hack the McDonald's Uh, system and fix these things a lot quicker. And they worked really, really well. Well, McDonald's, apparently not wanting to sell their own ice cream, got really pissed off about it. They went back and forth and have tried to basically destroy this company. The company is now destroying uh, trying to sue them for nine hundred million dollars. It's a lot of cash. We'll see how that turns out. And uh, a JetBlue pilot is in a little bit of trouble. It's had a little bit of a problem here. He was uh, going to fly uh, out of Buffalo and was pulled off the plane by the TSA. Now, it appeared he was a, a bit impaired. A bit impaired. And what does that mean exactly? They asked him, hey, have you had any, I don't know, drinks? And he said, okay, yes, seven or eight. Just, se- just the seven or eight drinks. I mean, what are you complaining about? It's just seven or eight. It's not like he did a power hour before he got on. Just seven. Well, that is about seven or eight drinks in an hour. But okay, seven or eight drinks. We've all done that in flown planes before. How can that possibly be that big of a deal? In fact, I remember the documentary Airplane where they showed there's that inflatable pilot that you could just put in charge of the plane and he'll fly it around and everything will be pretty much fine unless he pops. So, I mean, I, can you blame this guy? A seven or eight drinks, inflatable pilot. It probably should have worked out, but luckily for you, if you're a JetBlue frequent flyer, I don't think he's going to be flying any planes anytime soon. Is it too late to talk about New Year's resolutions? I feel like once you're in March, nobody's still doing their New Year's resolution. 
you get the first couple weeks of January, and that's about it. But if you didn't, you know, I don't know, maybe you're thinking, I don't know. I should probably find a way to shake things up. Maybe it's me getting uh, your back to the gym. You want to listen to some good music. Maybe an incredible podcast like this one. Whatever way you challenge yourself this new year, there's no better way to do it than with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. Why? Because they're awesome. Uh, Raycons are the best because they fit in your ear. They don't dangle below it. They don't protrude out. They fit flat to your ear. They're really great. They sound fantastic, and they will not budge. If you're running, if you're biking, no matter what you're doing, they're not going to fall out of your ear. Uh, Their everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime, 32 hours of battery life. They're really easy to pair, too. I hate when you have these Bluetooth things and they're difficult to pair. They don't work. Raycons work every single time I turn them on. And they're priced just right. You get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. Right now, listeners of this particular fantastic program that you can listen to on your Raycons, you can get 15% off right now at Raycon, uh, buyraycon.com slash stew. Buyraycon.com slash stew. B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash stew. You save 15% off your Raycons. You need these things in your life. Buyraycon.com slash stew. You can listen to the show on podcast, audio versions free every single day. You can get it on Spotify. Make sure you check it out there. Uh, follow the show there. No matter where you listen, subscribe to all these things. I mean, you got them on your phone anyway. Why not click the subscribe button for Stu Does America? We do really appreciate that. And when you rate and review the program, we appreciate it even more. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. Dum, 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 dum. I'm loving it. I love this stupid show. Thank you very much. Five freaking stars. Write a new review every week because I hope it hurts others. That's true. Every time you rate this particular podcast, it not only helps this podcast, but it hurts others. And that's the most important thing. We also are up on YouTube, youtube.com slash America. You can check out our State of the Union coverage, which was completely insane. Uh, also, we've been talking about uh, uh, a real tragedy that's happened on this program. Uh, I don't know what was worse, Biden's State of the Union or stew without a tie clip. Where will this world end? That's right. We are on day number two, America held hostage, stew with no tie clip. I can't, I don't know how we do the show. All the shows are going to suck until the tie clip comes back. That's my promise to you. I refuse to do a good show until that, that tie clip comes back. They've ordered them, but they're not in yet. Um, definitely hard to watch, sans tie clip. <laughs> how dare you? Every time I see that, though, I, act, how, I don't hear, see how dare you. I see, how dare you, from Greta. I always just see, that's, I, how dare you now only exists in Greta Thunberg's voice. How dare you? Back in a second. Okay, so here's what happened. We have spaceships, rocket ships that go into space, bending the laws of physics, incredible innovations by amazing minds, people who put their life into this sort of work, scientists, engineers, just amazing, incredible brains all put together to launch people into freaking space. I mean, it's incredible. And we have a bunch of idiots uh, on the planet as well. So one of the big complaints apparently about rocket ships that take us into outer space is that they all look phallic. You know, like 
male parts. Now, of course, as we all know, females can also have that part. I don't want to discriminate here. But some people associate the phallic shape with males. <laughs> if you believe that, it's like 1945 all over again. So what's the solution to this? A feminist group has got together and they have designed the first vulva-shaped rocket. Yes, vulva-shaped. Now, I will say this. Vulva is among the most fun words to say in the English language. Vulva. There's a Seinfeld episode. Mulva? Um... They need apparently 500,000 signatures to, for this vulva-shaped rocket to be considered by the European Space Agency, who's apparently making decisions based on signatures. I would not feel safe if I was an astronaut. They say it will help with inclusivity. inclusivity. I'd rather just keep saying vulva over and over again.